Hi, Diego Martinez here, welcoming you to a new episode of Tunes, a podcast about the songs we vibe to. This, as you now know, is the show where we explore the contents and legacy behind underrated and much-loved songs, with the help of the people at the very heart of the creative process. This time, we're joined by Swing Out sisters Corinne Drury and Andy Connell, who will speak about that unforgettable slice of Sophistapop, their 1986 smash hit, Breakout. I think when I wrote that song, it was heartfelt because I think I knew I needed to change something about my life, but I didn't really know how or what it was going to be, but I knew it was going to be something great. We took it to the record company, very proud, and they said, it's a good record, but it isn't what they're playing on the radio. And in actual fact, that turned out to be a virtue because it was deemed to be refreshing. You know, radio loved it because it wasn't what they were playing all the time. in Great Britain read as a very bleak affair. While the yuppies enjoyed a rise in incomes and a lavish lifestyle, most folks were in the throes of a crippling social-economic environment in the era of Thatcher. Unemployment rates rose to a chilling 14% in 1986, and so did the house prices. Thousands of miners took to the streets to fight the government's attempt to close down the collieries, an effort that resulted in one of the most bitter industrial disputes the country had ever seen. Meanwhile, the music industry suffered a major shift in the UK, as young performers challenged artistic and social orthodoxies while embracing emerging technologies. The advent of new wave, synthetic textures, and art school sensibilities applied to the anti-establishment posture of punk led to the success of bands like New Order, Talk Talk, OMD, and many others. There was another group of folks that dared for something different. A little bit mellow, yes, but still musically advanced. A collection of bands that include Everything But The Girl, Prefab Sprout, The Style Council, Shaw Day, and The Blue Nile, combined pop sensibilities with refined arrangements inspired by jazz, classical, avant-garde, and soul music, all while adopting an elegant yet understated fashion. Music critics called this group of bands sophistopop, renegades who look to the past and the future, aspiring for perfection on wax, and creating sonic experiences that are continuing to be felt today. One of the movement's brightest examples came unexpectedly from the rock and roll capital of the world, Manchester. It was there where composer Andy Connell and drummer Martin Jackson planted the seeds of a fruitful collaboration that took place with Nottingham-born vocalist Corinne Drury. Together, as Swing Out Sister, they were developing a fantastic musical combination that was almost getting ignored by the industry and the record-buying audience. A sense of propelling themselves forward, however, 
pushed them to create a motivating tune that filled the airwaves with its unique sound as soon as it was released in 1986. More than a sign of the times, Breakout was Swing Out Sisters' Do or Die moment, a culmination of a long trek through various musical styles and inspirations that seemed light years away from the cheerful sophistopop that brought them to international stardom. Martin Jackson, for instance, was a founding member of the post-punk group Magazine and played drums on their pioneering 1978 album Real Life before joining the Chameleons at the start of the 1980s. Andy Connell, on the other hand, had also dabbled in post-punk with the Immediates, but later traded that sound for a more new wave and funk sort of feel as a member of the indie band A Certain Ratio. You can't play in a band like that for that many years without thinking that there's got to be a dance element. You've got to be able to dance to it. You know, you should be moving. <laughs> but not in terms of the instrument take it, I didn't want it to be... I, I loved playing with that band, but equally, I think this was a reaction to that because we were always touring. We never we never recorded much. And uh, I wanted to get in the studio and just see what else you could do. But you, you can't help that some of that carries over. Yeah, I've always enjoyed a good rhythm section, you know, proper tight rhythm section. But not really... I mean, that was, you know, industrial funk. We didn't carry that bit over, really. <laughs> Martin, he liked completely different things. He, he liked rock music. I was all of the jazz stuff, Corinna's Dusty Springfield. The only thing we, we all had in common was John Barry and eventually Ennio Morricone, but um, really such disparate ideas. And I think that's what worked for us, was the disparity of everything. We were just coming from so many angles and not knowing what the hell we were doing. <laughs> After Martin left the Chameleons in 1983, he teamed up with Andy and DJ producer Greg Wilson to create an album that's still regarded today as a cult classic by the British electronic community, UK Electro. This LP, the first British album featuring sampling, got attention from the music press, but the association with Wilson proved to be fleeting, and a split ensued. Jackson and Connell were collaborating with fellow musicians Steve Murray and Hayden Ridings when they found themselves grooving to the beats of the famed club The Hacienda, where Greg Wilson had hosted a DJ residency as early as 83. They recognized a familiar figure on stage, a 20-something fashion designer they'd met before named Corinne Drury, who had started making rounds singing for bands like Jazz Dance Outfit, Working Week. I was a fashion designer, but my real love was singing. And I had auditioned. Well, I'd gone to see this band play at the Hacienda. And they said, do you want to sing a song with us, Venceremos? So I learned it on the way up from London in the van. So I, I hadn't sung with them before. And I walked on the stage and, and Andy was in the audience. I thought Martin was as well. Hacienda's not the best place to see a gig. Although we were talking about the other day about how who, who we'd seen there. And it's astonishing how many really good bands played there. The sound was 
dreadful in there. But um, so I wasn't expecting much. So the band came and they played and they were good. Something didn't ignite in the in the gig. It was it was good, but we're sitting drinking and chatting quietly. And Karen came on to sing her song, and I'm like, wow, whoa, what's that? That's something, <laughs> you know, probably nervous. I mean, I was a bit nervous because I didn't realize I was going to be singing with them and I didn't think I would know anyone, but I had met Andy once before in London, Andy and Martin. So he bought me a drink because I think he saw that I was nervous and I didn't really get the job with the band. I think they found another singer, but I'd only learned the song in the back of a van on the way up there. So it was a bit of a baptism of fire, but it was kind of weird to go from designing clothes in the day. Suddenly I was doing a gig at the Hacienda and I wasn't actually an experienced singer at all. You know, when the thing changes and you don't know why, everything changes because there's now something that works there. and. Whatever that algorithm is, you know, we can't explain. Everybody suddenly was like, oh, right, yeah, this works. Can't pass off on that one. <laughs> you know, that's too good, too good an opportunity to, to see the thing. And it's been like that ever since. You know, we, we've done good gigs, bad gigs, and whatever else, but the, but the straightforward thing is people's eyes lock on current. And you could say, well, that's because somebody's standing at the front, but it's not that. It's an unquantifiable thing to me, and I saw it that night. That well, I'm glad night. you think so. And I could say, oh, it's because Andy's biased, but actually Andy is my harshest critic as well. So I think uh, <laughs> if, if you're saying that, then, you know, you must mean it. <laughs> we had a mutual friend who managed Andy and he was also a friend of mine and, and they were looking for a, a singer and I said I'll sing he said you're not a singer and I go well I can be <laughs> and I wrote some songs for the backing tracks they had written which are these kind of UK electro I think it was a bit like the New York dancing electro sound and uh I really liked the tracks they had been doing and so that was some of our first demos I'd written some songs over that that electro thing at the time, it was, who would it be? Um, Africa Bambata, things like that. You know, it was all very much drum machine and a bass line and lots of effects going on. So we were doing that kind of thing, which was not, you know, not at all something you could sing a song over, really. So how Corin managed it, I have no idea. I like a challenge. <laughs> no, you, you obviously did. Slowly but surely, the trio started working on songs together, and they were quickly signed to a two-single deal by Phonogram Records, a label already familiar with Andy and Martin's Electro tracks. An important piece in the puzzle came with the input from record producer Paul Stavely O'Duffy, who by his teens was engineering albums by Yes, War and Marvin Gaye, and had remixed club tracks with the likes of Freeze, Stephanie Mills, Casey and the Sunshine Band, The System, and Ian Dury and the Blockheads. I think it was a very fortunate pairing. I mean, we, you know, we had arguments like you wouldn't believe, but creative art, you know, in the in the best sense. But the result was good. It was always a good outcome, and um, we didn't want to produce it. You know, we were happy pottering around doing our things, but it needed the breadth of vision to say, you know, for example, Breakout was going to be a synth track. Really, we were happy with where we were going to be, and it, and he had, I think, as. Producers have to stamp their authority on things. So I think when he's there, his input can come from, right, we're going to get a horn section, we're going to get some percussion, we're going to get this backing up. So he can then have his role, you know, he takes over. 
I, I was talking to someone the other day and it felt like to me it's like a film director it feels like we were the were screenwriters you know that thing when you always see the screenwriter sitting in the back while the film director stamps his mark on the thing and Paul really at that time in his career was very much about announcing himself Corinne Drury we didn't quite fit in with what was going on at the time because we were trying to do something a bit different. We thought, well, if that's already been done, where would we go? We were inspired by so much stuff. I mean, I was born in the late 50s, Andy in the 60s, so we kind of had the golden era of songwriting surrounding us as we grew up. What kind of a musical education is that? You know, we just heard all this fantastic stuff from the Beatles to the Mamas and the Papas and then all the whole Motown sound and then through the 70s, Earth, Wind and Fire and Isaac Hayes and all this, the film soundtracks of John Barry, Ennio Morricone. I mean, we were drowning in music. We were surrounded by it. And uh, I think really when we were writing those first songs, we were trying to incorporate everything that we had grown up with and everything we'd heard, even though we we didn't really have the capabilities. You know, we just thought we want it to sound like a film soundtrack. We want it to sound like Earth, Wind & Fire. We want it to sound like this. Petula Clark, Dusty Springfield, Dionne Warwick, whoa, the Supremes, all rolled into one. And that's where Paul O'Duffy came in. We were very lucky, although he was quite a young producer, he had an older brother that he had kind of done his apprenticeship with. He had worked with people like the Walker Brothers, and I think he'd worked with Fifth Dimension, hadn't he? He'd worked with a lot of 60s artists. So Paul was used to the old school recording techniques. When things were actually advancing and technology was changing and people were taking shortcuts, he was still a bit more old school. So we benefited from that. Martin and Corrine released her first single, Blue Mood, in 1985. Despite making a video for it, the song didn't even chart. For Andy and Corrine, however, Blue Mood is a transitional record, a middle point between the experimental stage of the UK electro era and the jazz-infused sounds that would surround the trio's first album, It's Better to Travel. Andy Connell. In our world, that's a very transitional thing from where we were to where we ended up. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms, but I do think you can feel something is passing into something else. And it is a nice, I, I've always liked that one. It's very clumsy in certain ways. The, the, the whole middle section is just boom, boom, but it's just strange. But it's very much what we were about. You know, it says, I like it for that reason. It's, it's like your awkward nephew or something. <laughs> you just think, you know, it just, it's got a charm. Let's say that. Well, it was one of our very early songs, so it's just got a little bit of everything. We were just getting to know each other. We hadn't really written the song together, so we're all putting something separate in, and we didn't really know how it was going mm. to turn out. In fact, you were in Holland or somewhere when we did that. You were always in Holland. Because <laughs> I was going, yeah. this has got a really weird length, this um, piece yeah. of music. So one verse has 13 bars, another verse has 18 bars. How are we going to do it? And that, we didn't even have mobile phones then and it's just like well but you know why that is not that it ne needs to be irregular but nowadays you wouldn't do that because the software would make you default to eight bars or 16 bars or whatever so if it was 17 you think well that can't be right we need to but in, the, in those days you'd just bang it down 
wherever it felt right, you would change. Blue Mood was also the first release under the group's new name, suggested by an A&R executive and inspired by an obscure 1945 musical comedy starring Arthur Treacher, Rod Cameron, and Billy Burke called Swing Out, Sister. They wouldn't put the record out, you know, obviously. You can't put the record out without a name. And we went through all manner of, you know, sort of film books and just rhyming dictionaries and couldn't find a name. And eventually we got unanimity because this name, I think the A&R guy suggested it, and we all disliked it. But it was the only one that we all disliked. You know, some of us would like one and it, it was... So we thought, well, in the interests of, you know, let's all be at least on the same page. So, yeah, we all dislike the name and still do, I think. <laughs> it was one that none of us were satisfied with, but we couldn't find one that we we're all happy with. So it worked. But it sometimes um, creates well, not a difficulty, but it's kind of surprise element, because I can remember when we were first doing promotional tours around America, especially, and we turn up and there'd be me and two guys and they go, where are the sisters? Where are the and girls? They're, they're here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think it, it confused people a bit. It's like the swing out sisters, but but they're guys. <laughs> After the disappointing performance of Blue Mood, Swing Out Sister was naturally walking on shaky ground. Remember, they had signed to a two-single deal. So if their second single doesn't do well, they risk getting dropped by phonogram. Corinne, Andy, and Martin continued writing new material, but a series of incidents set the wheels in motion for their absolute breakthrough. One such incident almost put a full stop to Swing Out Sister, and effectively, to Corinne's life. I went home for Christmas and had a riding accident on Christmas Eve of all times. What a Christmas that was. I hadn't been riding for a long time because I lived in London, but uh, I thought I could still ride. <laughs> the horse obviously knew better. <laughs> she threw me off and uh, I fractured my skull. And uh, it was a little bit hit and miss for a while. I had to recuperate for two or three months. It was about three months. But in that time, I just kept writing things down in a little notebook. I didn't know what I was writing. I didn't know why. I was just scribbling, scribbling, thoughts that came into my head. And I don't know even where the book went, but I think a lot of the things that I recalled when we were writing songs for our first demos and our first album were a lot of the things that had poured out of my mind when I was in this semi-conscious state. It was almost like a preparation for something that was to come, little premonitions. You know, I've written the ideas down for an album's worth of songs, but I'd met Andy and Martin and we'd done the first demos and we actually lost our first recording deal because nobody knew what was to become of me or us. And I said to them, well, if you want to get another singer, do, because I don't know what's going to happen here. But they waited for me. They waited to see if I was going to be, because I couldn't walk, I couldn't talk. It took a whole 
lot of time to recuperate. And um, I think when I did finally make it back to London, I just thought, do you know what? I'm going to do what I really want to do. When you've had a near-death experience like that, I think it wakes you up thinking, I don't want to just sit around doing something I don't really want to do for the rest of my life. Because what if I don't have a rest of my life? You better just do what you want to do and do it now. While Corinne got herself together after that brush with death, Andy was trying to figure out a direction to take on the song that would change everything for the group. He found the muse as he was watching the action at the 1986 World Cup held in Mexico. I don't know about in America, but the, the TV coverage here, it's like every day, you know, when they start the TV show, it's always terrible music. It's always really, the introductory music is so painful. You know, you're going to hear it for three weeks. So I was like, I can't do this. So I had this um, little setup. I'd recorded this a little version of it. So when, when they started the show, I would mute the sound and I would play my version, which seemed much more exuberant and World Cup-y than what they had. I was happy with it to be an, just an instrumental that, you know, cheered me up. And then Corinne decided that sh it should be a song. So it really was just another accident. But I think that in a way we were doing very, I wouldn't say melancholy, but most of the stuff we were doing, Martin and I, before Corinne came along, they were sort of very, not dark, but moody instrumental pieces, you know, lots of synth things on. And so it kind of caught me off guard that somehow I'd got some exuberance in. And I think it was the visuals of the World Cup somehow tricked me into doing something for once that was a little exuberant because it's not my fault. You know, I don't generally start there. <laughs> so, so yes, we can uh, we thank the World Cup for that one. With the instrumental already figured out, it was down to Corinne to write some lyrics. The time really had come to make or break as a pivotal A&R meeting with their label was looming closer. Corinne Drury. I get a phone call from our a and man, Nick Angel. Why haven't you finished this second song? I said, because Andy's on tour somewhere in Europe. I don't know where Martin is. I was in London. Andy and Martin lived up in Manchester. And they said, well, we need a song in the A&R meeting tomorrow at 10 o'clock. And if we don't have one, you're dropped. And I'm like, so it this just focus is... the mind, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't really much going on in the way of technology. When I went up to Manchester to do demos with Andy and Martin we had a four track but I just had a record player with a cassette player and a recording Walkman so I just thought well what am I going to do and I started singing some ideas but I only had one cassette so I couldn't use the cassette up till I had the final thing and I was going to record it from the record player playing in the room <laughs> and me singing over it on just a, a little C90 cassette. And then my flatmate decided I was making too much noise and she had to get up for work. And I'm like, oh no, how am I going to remember this song? There were no computers, there were no recording mobile phones. So I had to lie in bed, stay awake all night, sing the song over and over and over in my head because I didn't want to waste the tape and wait till the morning, press the button. And by that time, I knew the song pretty much off by heart. It was kind of thriller backwards. That's how I, that's how I remembered it. And then the motorcycle courier turned up at nine o'clock. 
I'm with this after the A&R meeting. So Andy Martin had never even heard the finished version of Breakout that was played oh. in the A&R meeting. Um, they'd had ideas of it, but I don't think Andy liked it very much because I do have one of the four track cassettes somewhere with you snoring in it. I think you fell asleep. Well, because I just we'd just come back from Aberdeen or somewhere. Then you know, there was an excuse. <laughs> You know, I mean, it didn't come together in a great way, this song. There was great hope and intention, but actually it all fell apart because we were in different parts of the world and this motorcycle courier was turning up for the cassette at nine o'clock in the morning. I sang the song at eight o'clock in the morning. They took it to the A&R meeting. By some sheer fluke, they decided to accept it. Yeah, OK, go and record the song. But by the time Corrine finally recorded the song, the rough demo had come alive with a dazzling big band-inspired production by Paul O'Daffy, who brought in arranger Richard Niles, fresh from his involvement on Grace Jones's 1985 classic Slave to the Rhythm, to score the horn section. Again, Andy Connell. We were skeptical about horns, but as soon as, um, you know, I took, so in my mind, it went from being a Zawinul Weather Report thing to more of a Jacko Big Band, Jacko Pastoris Big Band thing. So I was ha- very happy with that. And of course, then you get Richard Niles in the equation. You know, if you're going to get a horn arranger, he's the man. He's the absolute man. You know, he'd just done Slaves to the Rhythm at that time and killed it, basically. And so we got him in his absolute prime, ready to, you know, do something. And um, all the way along the line, it was just a great combination of energies. I put on the headphones and the song is so sophisticated with strings, with horns, with backing vocals. The little demo that I'd done the guide vocal on was nowhere to be heard in this. And I couldn't sing the song. I felt really intimidated and I started crying. (laughs) So what you think is a happy, uplifting song, I was actually bawling my eyes out before I And Andy's going, what's the matter? And I'm going, well, this isn't anything like the demo. This is nothing like the demo we, we sent. And how are we going to perform this live? Because there's only three of us in the band and we've got all these horn section and backing vocals and this. I obviously didn't have my hopes set very high and we weren't going to be playing with an orchestra at the Albert Hall or the Carnegie Hall with a huge big band and orchestra. And Andy said, well, just tell me some of your favourite records then. I know. You don't have to say you love me, Dusty Springfield. You don't have to say you love me, just be close at hand. Ain't no mountain high enough, Diana Ross. Diamonds are forever, Shirley Bassett. Diamonds are forever. Every single one of them, he said, do you think any of those divas complained about the song that they were singing? You know, did they complain about the music and the orchestration and the arrangements? I mean, ain't, no man, ain't No Mountain High Enough was the one for me. Because you just think, <laughs> is there a more produced record than that in the world? <laughs> just, and so uh, I shut up and sang the song. I was thinking, I should be so grateful. I've got this beautiful soundtrack to sing upon. But I think I yeah. felt a, 
a bit intimidated and I felt guilty because we didn't play everything ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> It felt to me like that has to do something because even the, the you know the things that Richard added and the, the cellos in the chorus, which that's the bit nobody for me nobody talk, everybody talks about the horn parts, but for me it's the cellos through the chorus just aching things like that that just you can't really make logical sense of. You listen to the thing at the end, you think, well, that's turned into something that I don't know what it is, but it's something, you know. And it's the only time I've ever said anything because I'm generally pessimistic about what's happening with releases. But that, having said that, you know, we went home and I went to my parents' house for dinner and put the uh, tape on. And my mom said, well, yeah, that's that's nice. But, you know, <laughs> she just completely unimpressed, not unimpressed, but just, well, yeah, keep going. You know, something will, maybe the next one will have some. It, she just didn't hear it at all. And, and a lot of people didn't. You know, we took it to the record company, very proud. Mm. And they said, it's a good record, but it isn't what they're playing on the radio. So, you know, the radio department would just, you know, honestly, I wish we could tell you something more positive, but it's not what they're playing. And of course, they had to do it anyway. They had to service radio. So they took it in. And again, one of those things you can't legislate for, it sounded great on the radio. Now, nobody knows in those days, nobody knew, you know, with the compressors they were using and the FM, whatever. Nobody could tell you why something sounded great or didn't, but certain things just came alive on the radio and it did. I mean, they were right. You know, all of the focus groups or whatever they were doing at the time were saying, this isn't what we expect to hear. And in actual fact, that turned out to be a virtue because it was deemed to be refreshing. You know, Radio loved it because it wasn't what they were playing all the time. I think it was a bit waggy-tailed and, and upbeat and positive. And I think it, we probably just hit a time when the attitude in the songs at that time was a bit more moody. Everyone was having a bit of a sneer and it was all a little bit cool and laid back. But this is just so upfront and exuberant and positive it was kind of like uh, it doesn't really fit with the mood of the times but I think we couldn't resist it especially me because when I hear a record that I love I want to jump for joy something like the Jackson 5 I want you back or baby love the Supremes an earth wind and fire track it's just like you hear it and you're up and you just want to jump up and I I don't think I had time to be too moody and cool I kind of thought I, this is the way I want to sing a song I want us to have a song like the songs that we have loved that just make you feel great straight away but I that makes it sound like there was a plan I don't think there was any plan I think we just put everything we had into that song it had to work so if we didn't put everything with the kitchen sink into there and make this a hit then we weren't going to have one so yeah Andy's premonition was right you know so like, like this isn't one. a hit I wish I'd had <laughs> <laughs> Whatever initial hesitation Phonogram and Mercury Records had, it completely dissipated when the sophisticated sound of Breakout washed over radio stations upon its release in the autumn of 1986. It shot to the top five in the UK 
and number six in America the following year. It also reached the number one spot on adult contemporary, number 12 on the U.S. dance charts, and was also a major hit in territories like Australia, Belgium, Canada, Germany, Ireland, the Netherlands, and New Zealand. The song earned Swing Out Sister two Grammy nominations in 1988, one for Best New Artist, and another one for Best Pop Vocal Performance by a Duo or a Group. Though they didn't take a trophy back home to the UK, the group has since then received messages from fans about how the message behind the lyrics from Breakout inspired them to turn their lives around. I think when I wrote that song, it was heartfelt because I think I knew I needed to change something about my life, but I didn't really know how or what it was going to be. But I knew it was going to be something great. I was just positive about things. And I think now it's probably a bit bit of a different situation for, you know, the younger generation. They must be, I don't know, it's never easy when you're trying to decide where your life's going to go, but there's a lot more things to take into account now, it seems. I think ours was a slightly more blinkered journey because we probably weren't so aware of what was going on without the internet, without mobile phones and computers. I I think we had a kind of more blinkered view of the world, didn't we? I still, I'm just remembering the letter that you got from some guy after the breakout had been a hit and uh, he basically wrote this letter to Corinne saying he had given him the energy to quit his job at the pig farm. I mean, I don't know what happened to him (laughs) after that, but yeah. Well, I I also think not so many people identify with that song as as being a great coming out song, but a lot of our Mm. gay fans have written to us and thanked us and said they were really so grateful for that song because it helped them make a decision in their life to come out, to kind of be courageous and lots of different stories, but it is quite a coming out song, but it doesn't, it's not so well known as Gloria Gaynor or something like that. But I think a a lot of people have been inspired to make a change because of our song. And it's always very heart-wrenching to hear people's stories and to think, well, this is just a song that Andy wrote the music and I wrote the lyrics in my bedroom the night before the A&R man was issuing it us with an ultimatum saying if you don't get this song finished for the A&R meeting tomorrow you're dropped and it so it was all a bit last minute in the end and a bit of a panic but it has had such an impact on some people's lives but I think the reason it has as well is because it wasn't written with that in mind it wasn't supposed to be anthemic or or, you know it it just it was how we felt and I think it was sincere for that to translate into yeah how everybody else feels you know it's very rare that you ever get that opportunity. Thirty-six years after its release, Breakout continues to inspire interpretations by musicians and vocalists, including a brand new version by Macy Goldsbrough, which Andy arranged, giving it a brand new meaning of uncertainty, a feeling once absent from its original rendition. When explanations make no sense Then every answer's wrong You're fighting with lost confidence All expectations gone 
this girl Macy had picked on the song because it resonated with her and the whole situation. I mean, I think the way we recorded the song was in a very positive way. It's like, if, if you want to change, then do it. But hers is a bit more reflective. It's like, if you're going to change, how are we going to do it? You know, what? this is like 36 years on. But it's, uh, it's interesting to see that somebody who is a good deal younger than us can still identify with the kind of meaning of the song. Say what you want to say because circumstances have changed and she, I, I, I exactly, I think you're right. She identifies with the uncertainty of it. Whereas in the late eighties, everybody identified with the positivity, you know, the sort of um, the idea of uh, empowerment and all the rest of it. But the circumstances we live in now, what she sees is the situations make no sense. Every answer is wrong. You know, it's a whole different song to her than it was when we wrote it, you know, it's, um, yeah. which is nice. It's nice that- It's can... a more reflective interpretation, isn't it? And you did yeah. a great arrangement for it with a, quite a different take on it. Well, she made me feel sad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Swing Out Sister never lost track of itself and went from strength to strength after the success of Breakout. They released three more singles from their UK number one album, It's Better to Travel. All of them peaked inside the UK Top 40 and the US club charts. Martin Jackson left the group in 1989 while they were in the process of recording their sophomore LP, Kaleidoscope World. In 1992, they enjoyed another hit in America with a cover of Barbara Eichlin's Am I the Same Girl? the lead single from their third album, Get In Touch With Yourself. By then, Andy and Corinne had settled on a prolific run that was free from the pressures of achieving another hit like Breakout, finding a deeper appreciation for their music in the Japanese market where they still have a strong fan base today. Maybe by the time we were doing our third album, we were already kind of looked at as, well, we, you've had your moment now. So I think a lot of people at that point go into, you know, they become an A&R man or they find another job or they do, you know, because your peak has peaked. And, and we um, weren't expecting the peak in the first place. And so we could carry on without the pressure, in a sense, because it was always... We were very happy to just um, had a little bit of success here and there in various places and just enough to tick over. And I think very few people can do that, can survive that kind of... Uh, I, mean, I remember Joni Mitchell years ago saying she'd have been very happy to sell 100,000 records every year, but the record company would not countenance that because you're either... If you sell a million, the next time you sell 300,000, you're on the way down. That's always been the case. So I'm, uh, we've been descending from a great height for decades now, <laughs> which I think has helped us because we can do what we want. You know, the, the budgets aren't the same, but then the technology has evolved, so you don't need the budgets to be quite what they were. 
we had a sort of second wave in Japan. You know, it was it was very much it was very well received. And I think we, there's all sorts of theories about that. But we we had that they embraced the kind of um, the female lead, you know, plan. And and there was there were all kinds of nuances about that because people would say, well, why do you think this is taken off in Japan now? And I think at that time it was probably 90s, mid 90s, and there was a change in Japanese society. There were a lot of single women in positions of not power, but of you know the higher echelons of businesses and society was changing and I think the idea that Corinne was obviously such a strong presence I wouldn't say I was a weak presence but she was perceived to be the dominant part of the thing and and also I remember one of the girls saying is Corinne slightly taller than you and and it was just things like that you know it was a powerful woman and something ignited in especially a female audience there how do you anticipate something you can't anticipate that it was just very fortunate and we had a wonderful time still do I think we were keen to learn about the Japanese culture because Japan is so different from anything we know in the Western world, their traditions and just like the clothing, the food. It was always somewhere that we'd wanted to visit and discover. And I can remember asking our record company, when do we get to go to Japan? They go, you got to get a hit record in England first. <laughs> so as soon as we had a hit in England and then Europe and then America, we're going, Japan next. And it was very exciting to go to this faraway place with very different traditions and culture to what we had known. And and I think they were as curious about us as we were them. So it was kind of a nice mutual appreciation society. Over the course of almost four decades, Andy Connell and Corinne Drury had recorded 11 albums as Swing Out Sister. The last one being 2017's Almost Persuaded. They're currently working on a long-simmering big band project, as well as new music and some surprising collaborations made during the COVID-19 lockdowns in the UK. I have been backwards and forwards. Originally, what I was going to do, the idea of it was almost persuaded was going to be that kind of sampled. What I, what I thought would be a great idea is to sample all the songs in a big band style and then make a record out of the sample, you know, rather than just do a big band album, to make a, a contemporary record using the samples. Some people say, oh, where's that sample from? It would be ours. You know, we would have sampled ourselves. But of course, when the thing was went down, it, it sounded so great as it was that it seemed rude to chop it up. So we spent a few years doing that and then not doing that. So that's really ready to go. It's just me wanting it to be perfect, really. It's one of those. But the other stuff is separate to that. You know, there's new material that we, we're working on. But we always say that. I think we get in the habit because, you know, over the years, record companies would say, wait, are you working on new material? And of course, oh, yeah, of course we are, yeah. Because <laughs> But you always are. You're always doing, whether it's formative or it's, it's, it's you know, starting to take shape. It's um, You're always working. Yeah, we've always got ideas formulating up there, but it's just where to go. I mean, it's um, we don't want to retread ground that has been trodden, but there's also a certain sound that we're familiar with and people are familiar with us that we're good at. So I kind of think to try and do something drastic, although I have done a little collaboration with somebody and done a bit of a heavy metal track. <laughs> <laughs> You know, during lockdown, some strange things happened and we made a few friends online. We were all locked up in our houses, weren't we? And you're sort of online in the middle of the night and something pops up. Hey, do you fancy singing on this? It's heavy metal, but it, we love Swing Out Sister. And so, so there's a few little collaborations like that. Andy and Coring are not afraid to look back at their legacy 
with pride and a sense of achievement. In 2022, they are celebrating 35 years of It's Better to Travel with the release of a retrospective bot set, Blue Mood, Breakout and Beyond, The Early Years, Volume 1, featuring all their biggest hits, as well as remixes, B-sides, rarities, and a 1992 live recording at the Jazz Cafe. Not a lot has changed for Andy Connell and Corinne Drury. They're still very much surprised and humbled about the fact that the music they created as Swing Out Sister is as vibrant and inspiring for audiences the world over as it was back in 86, when Sophistapop was all the rage. Today, their impact and the enjoyment they get from doing something they love remains intact, far beyond the initial breakout that changed the course of their lives. It's daunting when you suddenly realize, we, we did a couple, you know, in the lockdown, we did a couple of things. We'd get everybody, or the band to record their own parts of the song and we'd assemble it and make a, a video of various songs. And we'd put it on Facebook Live and it would have that effect, you know, because it's happening in real time and you would see the comments and say, oh, we're watching in the Philippines, we're watching in Portugal, or we're watching in Wales. So, and just the idea of this just constant stream of people that are listening to what you're doing you know, simultaneously. It's, it's an astonishing thing to be a part of. And I think that was the thing that, um, in the end, with Breakout, is the idea that you've somehow put something in the public consciousness, you know, you've, you've, you've entered the cultural consciousness in, in, all right, in a tiny way, it's a little footnote, but you know, it, it exists, you know, you, and it can't be taken from you now. <laughs> it's just, it's part of the world. And I love that, and I, I, I do love that. We have so many people to thank for inspiring us to make music. And if we can go on and inspire others to, that's great. I really love it when we meet people and, you know, and other musicians, young bands, and they might not recognize us. And then they go, oh, you're in that band. God, I love this song. And then they remember the song or they say, oh, we took that to our A&R meeting because we wanted our record company to know we wanted to make a record like this. And it's like the same as we were with I Want You Back or Downtown or, you know, there are some songs that just uplift and you want them to be anthemic or you want to create a song that, that is as anthemic as that. I mean, hopefully we did inspire a few. As long as you're doing something you love, you probably don't sit back and think, hey, we've done this, this, this and this. It's like, well, we just did it because we loved it and we are still doing it because we love it. I don't think we're doing it quite as prolifically as we were then, but you know, when the moment takes you and there's something that really captures your imagination, you just do it. And we've been so lucky to be able to make a career out of doing something that we just love doing. Thanks to Andy Connell and Corinne Drury for their contributions to this episode. And a special shout out to Ant and Derek Green for making this possible. And of course, thank you all for listening. This episode was produced and hosted by yours truly, Diego Martinez. Our executive producer is Nicholas Nickfresh Puzo. And our audio engineer is Adam Fogel. Follow tunes all over social media. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ChoonSpod. That is C-H-O-O-N-S-P-O-D. And become part of our community on Patreon, where you can find early access to our content, 
after-show discussions, and much more, starting at $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash tunespod. Don't forget to rate us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. And subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'll return for more deep dives into the songs that define us on the next episode of Tunes. <laughs>